0: Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Well, it's back. Hurricane season, that is. Today we're looking at strategies for recovering from devastating hurricanes. I hope you liked our new segment, Science for the Win. Let us know what you think on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. We'll be adding that into our regular rotation. Today we have another installment of This Week in Science History with Katie Love. It's June, and we're about two weeks into the 2019 Atlantic hurricane season. I don't know about you, but I don't feel 100% ready yet for more storms. Because as we saw last year with Hurricanes Florence and Michael, among others, we haven't done enough to protect the most vulnerable populations from these increasingly deadly storms. We haven't done enough to help folks bounce back, and we really haven't done enough to address the changing climate that makes these storms more dangerous. In fact, it's almost like we can barely talk about hurricanes, because we haven't acknowledged as a nation that thousands of our fellow Americans died during one of the worst and most destructive storms to ever hit Puerto Rico. We haven't faced the fact that the survivors of Hurricane Maria continue to struggle. We also haven't developed a cohesive federal plan to help Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans recover and rebuild sustainably. In the absence of this kind of fundamental leadership, many members of the Puerto Rican diaspora living in the mainland US have stepped up to fill in the gaps. And I'm very honored to have two such folks on the podcast to talk about sustainable recovery in Puerto Rico. Yanel de Angel is an architect working in Boston. She created the organization Resiliency, which unites people working in academia, nonprofit, and private industry to work together for recovery and resilience. And Ramon Bueno, who serves on the organization's steering committee, is a contractor who specializes in climate change and development and the economics of climate change. They talked about the definition of resilience, how switching from fossil fuels to renewable energy will only help if it's part of a larger strategy for recovery, and how their organization views recovery holistically, not piece by piece. Our correspondent, Abby Figueroa, has the story. Janelle and Ramon, welcome to Got Science. Thanks for being here with us today.
1: Thank you for having us. Uh,
2: Likewise, yeah.
3: So we're here today to talk about clean energy and some of the exciting developments happening in this um, sector. One of the things that's been in the news a lot is this movement towards 100% clean electricity. In the past couple of years, we've seen several states adopt this new goal. Hawaii, California... New Mexico and Washington State have all set goals for 100% clean electricity. And Puerto Rico announced that it, too, would reach this goal by 2050. What does having this type of goal mean for Puerto Rico and for Puerto Ricans who are still struggling to rebuild the grid after Hurricane Maria destroyed it?
2: Well, it, it's a big uh, it's a big deal. It's a big stretch, uh, I, I would say, also, because right now Puerto Rico uh, is mostly fossil fuels, you know, um, uh, there's some coal, oil, and gas, and maybe at most two or so percent renewables. The reason it's a stretch is, aside from those numbers, is that Puerto Rico, by law, was on the prior law, was supposed to have reached 12% renewables right around now, and it clearly did not. So it's gonna require not just setting good goals, but changing the way things are done so that you meet those goals.
3: If Puerto Rico had already set a goal and had missed it, do you think this is the right approach? Of setting these 100% clean energy goals, or is there something else that Puerto Rico or the other states should be doing?
2: Now, I think you need the goals so that you have something to be held against, you know, uh, that you're you're trying to reach. But the key thing is, uh, and, and I hope that the crisis uh, makes the difference, is really institutional and political is having the the willpower to make sure that it's executed. And it's, it's a very tricky thing, because in Puerto Rico, uh, power utility uh, over the last several decades has gone from having completed a tremendous job of electrifying the island to all of a sudden becoming captive to the alternating political parties, naming boards of directors and executives and that kind of stuff. And that's led to stalemate and deterioration. So that's the challenge, changing things so that um, things can actually happen. Allegedly, that's part of the plan, right? They're tossing everything up and privatizing the the generation and leasing the distribution and transmission. But that by itself is not a guarantee that it's going to happen. It really requires uh, just much more transparency, accountability, uh, participation from all sectors to make sure that it happens.
3: Now, setting these goals is one thing and actually making it happen and, and making the changes happen is quite another endeavor. Um, Janelle, I know that you went to Puerto Rico after the hurricane to help with disaster relief, and out of that experience was born an organization that you put together called Resiliency. Tell us a little bit about Resiliency and why did you see such a need for this group to be formed?
1: Resiliency is a multidisciplinary platform. I like to call it a transdisciplinary platform. I have been told. That word doesn't exist, but I think it should exist, (laughs) because it's really uh, the coming together of different um, areas and expertises. So you have the private sector, you have the academic sector, you have nonprofit organizations at the service of communities of every scale. And we all come from different perspectives. Um, I think the problems that we're trying to solve are too complex to be solved in a silo. Therefore, my insistence in the transdisciplinary where you're you're beyond disciplines. You're really trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes or expertise and see solutions from that lens so that you can find synergies to these very difficult uh, problems. So in the platform, we have everything from social uh, social scientists Climate justice scientists, economists, architects, engineers, community capacity experts—all of these different components coming together to tackle whatever the problem is. Um, so the the things that we are really involved with kind of have this scalability component, which we think is important. And Ramon was speaking to you know the island and policies that affect island wide. We are also working at the level of municipalities and at the level of communities, communities as small as 120, 175 dwellings, and as big as a municipality or even the island.
3: What did you see when you were there in Puerto Rico after the hurricane that inspired you to create this organization?
1: So it was not just what I saw, uh, but also a transformation Diaspora outside of the island, like Ramon, myself, and many others, and even people that have been there or empathize with the situation, were in the mainland feeling very, you know, how how can I help out? Uh, I feel disconnected. Yet I'm, you know, I want to help out. So that prompted the, the the first trip, and in that trip, what I found was a sadness like nothing else seen before, and. And I saw sadness that went so deep into a well just by looking at someone's eyes that you could tell something really had shifted. And this was not just any other hurricane. This was really a turning point in the history of the island. Um, And we saw communities that were completely disfranchised, had no one to kind of root for them, and we were really drawn to those communities or municipalities that were and basically had no money uh, and needed some guidance and strategic help. Um, yeah, so th- that was a very uh, important trip to solidify our commitment and to share with everyone that was, you know, back here in the mainland that had not have the opportunity to go there. You know, these are the conditions and they are dire and, and we need to come together.
3: You know, we're here today almost two years later what are the projects that resiliency is working on that excite you?
1: We have four main projects. The first one that we took on very early on was uh, the creation of a resilient manual for housing uh, available for free to homeowners across the island. That effort was uh, is led by Enterprise Community Partners. They are a nonprofit organo- organization that advocates for equitable and affordable housing. Right after Maria, I was very impressed because they were able to raise a substantial amount of money and they put all of that money uh, towards this project and they assembled a, an, an amazing group of people. Uh, we became technical partners in that. Uh, we have done all the content creation, all the photography, and now it's in the hands of a graphic designer putting together the, the final uh, manual that is coming out uh, this summer, and then after that there is training. Out of that project came the need uh, to do a similar guide, but kind of more abbreviated for what we are calling community resilient hubs. So before uh, Hurricane Maria, you know, from a society point of view or social point of view, things were kind of not uh, as strong as they should have been, and Maria, taught everyone the importance of communication and coming together. The third project is we have been working in the Toa Baja municipality, and the work we are doing at the municipality level is in partnership with MIT as well. That is, they are developing a tool for early resilient planning. So in the Toa Baja municipality, we have the phenomenon of being able to see things from that level with a very collaborative and supportive uh, and facilitating mayor and his administration, then looking at communities uh, that are, some of them own title to land, some others don't, and helping them create uh, resilient framework plans so that they can go after funding, secure that funding, and be, you know, off the grid, uh, microgrids, and so on.
3: Let's uh, zoom out a little bit now um, from Puerto Rico to looking at the country at large. There's been a lot of progress with renewable energy and sort of this change to a clean energy system over the past few years. Yet there was a really disturbing statistic that came out last month from the um, Energy Information Administration, the federal agency, and it said that fossil fuel consumption has climbed. It climbed last year 4%. Even though renewable energy continues to go up. This is worrisome because we need to be moving in a downward direction with our fossil fuel use, mm-hmm. with the threat of climate change on top of us, What do you think is happening, and should we be concerned that we're headed in the wrong direction?
2: I think we should be concerned. For example, the fact that in Puerto Rico, almost all the energy comes from fossil fuels. Well, in that case there, it's all imported, uh, which means it's extremely expensive. The island spends something like $2 billion a year on, on importing the fuel. That's money that's not circulating locally, creating other opportunities. Almost all these plants have pollution that is not only the Heat warming, you know, uh, warming effects that are causing in the long run all these other problems. But their communities that surround the plants all tend to have greater incidence of certain kinds of breathing and other uh, health problems, uh, which affects not only the community, but it's also a cost to them and to the society at large. That is replicable all over the, the country. From many different angles, there's an urgency really to getting a handle on this and finding. Uh, the way to transition and, and the economics of it are becoming very positive to substituting the mix of uh, uh, energy sources but the, the economics of the business and politics of it are, are still obstacles and finding a way to do it is, is important
0: We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview The Dot Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guests, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at gotscienceucs. Or you can connect with me directly at ColleenGotSai. Last week was Sea Turtle Week, and I have a secret life working with Sea Turtle Rescue and Rehab. You can find out more on Twitter at Colleen Gottsai. Now let's get back to our interview.
3: Now both of you have worked with individuals and with community groups in your work. How do you get folks on the ground who aren't thinking about these issues every day like you are to get excited about clean energy? How do you make sure that their voices are heard?
2: The most vulnerable uh, folks are the ones who are also on the on the lower end of the um, uh, socioeconomic scale. Uh, so there's a double, triple incentive in reducing that. Because it's actually good for people who are not even poor. Because if the same disaster that took place in Puerto Rico, if, if say, the bottom third or half of the population who is a, that's economically disadvantaged was in much better conditions. That The overall cost to the island and to the Congress here as well would be much, much smaller. So it's in everybody's interest, really, to um, it's not just a technical and and physical problem. It's a socioeconomic problem. And if you can reduce the inequalities and improve, invest in reducing those things, you're actually already getting tremendous returns in terms of the the greater resilience, the reduced vulnerability, so that when things do happen, you can you don't have to spend as many resources. And also you avoid a lot of calamities, you know, unnecessary deaths and suffering. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, at the beginning you asked what was, what is resiliency as a, and I was explaining the platform. We write resiliency, resilient, and then capital S-E-E, for social, environmental, and economic. You cannot fix one thing, it's it's a system. You need to kind of see it holistically. I I wanted to share with you uh, a story and that is one of the communities we're working with said we we were on this call and we were trying to understand what were the electrical needs of the community because we want to create a microgrid that is completely separated from the island grid and he he said to the person who was asking a lot of the questions he said i'm all for sustainability and renewable energy and all of this this is beyond being what he called it uh, all hippie let's hold hands this is a need. this community doesn't does not have infrastructure to survive and I think in parts of the country where either mainland or you know many island nations, you do have communities that kind of live out there and you need to provide some kind of way for them to sustain themselves uh, whether they are connected or not that's mm-hmm. another subject matter that you can uh, Ramon can better explain. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's necessity. We are at the point of necessity.
2: It brings another interesting point. Recently, uh, uh, folks at the U- University of Puerto Rico in Maya west have produced some reports analyzing the um, impacts of the hurricane on the electrical system in Puerto Rico. It's a very interesting uh, document. One of the authors also has been studying the loss of power, quantifying the, just what, what's the scale of what happened. And it's very interesting. Uh, they, they, they have a measure called customer hours of lost electricity. That way you can compare the scale in terms of the numbers of customers. A customer is, a, is a, an account, so it's a household or something like that, versus also the duration. And what they found is that uh, to the time when the last connections, uh, restoring of power was taking place, it was something like 3,000 million hours. Going back to the vulnerability, what they found is that a third of those lost hours impacted the, the 200,000 homes that were last restored power, people who had well over five months without power. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting point that they, they're arguing is that he, he's making a very strong pitch that the funds in, in, invested in, in improving the electrical system should begin by with those people. Putting uh, they're, they're more remote and isolated, putting solar panels and batteries with them because while everybody's making big plans, if another storm hits now, the hurricane season mm-hmm. to yeah. the second season after that is only a few weeks away, really. So those are the people who are the most vulnerable. So t- talk about a productive investment is get those people uh, protected so that while you make plans that are going to take years, You've you've already reduced you know a third of the loss was two hundred thousand families, which is about fourteen percent of all the customers. So talk about an inversion of the impacts were in, in, disproportionately on them, but that's precisely where the investments should start, not with those who can afford to put improved systems and all that kind of stuff. So that's a I think that's a, a good lens to see things through.
3: I'm curious what you think individuals can do. What do you tell people who you know when they want to get involved with clean energy?
2: These solutions go beyond the individual. So I think getting involved is is very important at whatever capacity people have. There's going to be a lot of discussion on legislation, for example, in, in, the, in the next year or two. And a lot of it is going to come down to very narrow proposals, some of them only very strictly technical versus others that are more comprehensive. And I think that's where these issues come into play. What are all the aspects of benefits and savings? Is it just purely economical, or are there health and other kind of consequences, community? Uh, so, so I think getting involved and having the broadest possible view of the, of the issue is it's, it's really important. You know, the technical stuff is essential, but it's insufficient if it's not dealt with in the context of the larger political, and economics, you know, communities.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree 100% with uh, with what Ramon just said, but I'm gonna go back to the technical because I'm an architect <laughs> and is, is what I do every day. But, you know, an individual, let's say someone in a household, yes, all the good things, you know, unplug what you don't use because if you leave it, plugged, it's still, you know, it's still active. Uh, you know, don't turn your AC or your heater if you don't have to. All those things are good practices and should be encouraged, but what we have nationwide, it's houses that not only have poor and inefficient equipment for you know, AC uh, heating and all of that, but actually poor insulation and poor uh, envelope detailing for the interface between window and wall, roof and wall, foundations and all of that
3: you know, there's a lot of young people today who are getting involved in climate change action and in clean energy issues. How do you explain resiliency to a child, to a fourth grader? What does that term mean if you're a kid? Hmm.
1: I have a fifth grader. Okay, how, how do you how do you explain resiliency
3: to your fifth grader?
1: Um, I would say it's the ability uh, to bounce back, but not necessarily to... The state in which you were before, but better, smarter, and in a way, to get to get there, building consensus along the way to your point of, you know, we need to see uh, advocacy, policy, and all of these things at a bigger picture. So I I think it's important when. You know things are happening in the planet and you see something in the news at your fifth grader or fourth grader is asking is to explain the why and how other countries had found a way to be in a position of resilience is by having these discussions and being involved we were in um, the netherlands recently and I talked to my, my daughter, who's the fifth grader, quite a bit about things that they were doing and how cool that, you know, you have all of these windmills and what do you think the windmills are doing? You know, they have to see it in a tangible way and that it's something, you know, working with passive methodologies. We have sun, we have wind, we you know, we have tidal, uh, so... That's the way I will explain it with real life examples, uh, but always saying it's not the status quo and it's not going back to what was considered "quote unquote" good, but exceeding that and you know being better mm-hmm. so to bounce back and to bounce back better. Bounce back. And I, better. and I would
2: add to to look at the look at the situation and be smart about it, so that you don't have to bounce so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you know, you <laughs> to bounce as you as much as you need in a smart way but if you can avoid having to bounce a lot, you're better off. Mm -hmm. So planning, thinking smart.
3: I like that, thank you. Thank you both for coming on and talking to us today. Thank Thank you. you. And good luck with the work um, in Puerto Rico on resiliency and the other clean energy work that you're
0: doing. Thank Thank you. It's time for a short segment we call This Week in Science History with Katie Love.
4: This Week in Science History, we're going back to June 22nd, 1969. Fifty years ago, sparks from a train fell on oil-soaked debris floating on the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, igniting a blaze that burned for 20 minutes, caused roughly $50,000 worth of damage to two railroad bridges, and helped spark a massive change in the United States. This was not the first time there was a fire on the Cuyahoga River. A much larger blaze occurred more than a decade before in 1952. In fact, if you've ever seen a picture of a fire on the Cuyahoga, it's likely that earlier event you've seen, as there are no known pictures of the smaller 1969 blaze. And in the immediate aftermath of June of 69, this seemed like just another of the dozen or so fires that had burned on the river since 1868. For decades, the Cuyahoga had been the site of industrial pollution, which was often seen as a necessary consequence of industry and the economic gains it brought to the city. But a lot had changed in the years leading up to that 1969 fire. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, had raised the public's consciousness about human impact on the natural environment. An oil spill off the coast of California filled people's newspapers and televisions with images of oil-soaked and dying wildlife. And in Cleveland itself, residents had recently overwhelmingly passed a bond initiative to clean up the Cuyahoga. A few months later, Time magazine brought the fire to national attention with an article on the Cuyahoga stating chocolate brown, oily, bubbling with subsurface gases. It oozes rather than flows. Anyone who falls into the Cuyahoga does not drown, Cleveland's citizens joke grimly, he decays. After the fire, Mayor Carl Stokes, the first black mayor of a major city when he was elected in 1967, vocally advocated for greater pollution control at the federal level. And he was not alone. The fire, along with other events such as the California oil spill, helped focus public and political attention on the fact that something was very wrong in our environment. Thanks to public advocacy and political will, that year, Congress passed the National Environmental Policy Act. A year later, the Environmental Protection Agency was established, and that was followed by the Clean Water Act in 1972. The Cuyahoga River is still used as a punchline about Cleveland, but people clearly need to update their material. Protections such as the Clean Water Act have vastly improved the environment in and around the river. In fact, just this March, it was announced that fish swimming in the river, a river where there was once little to no life at all, are safe to eat. But success stories like this take strong, science-based safeguards to make them happen. And it's just these kinds of safeguards and protections that the Trump administration is actively trying to roll back, putting industry interests above the public interest. The Union of Concerned Scientists is keeping a close eye on the Trump administration and Congress, calling out abuses of science and threats to public safeguards as they happen and pushing back. Learn how you can show your support for science, facts, and reason, and advocate for solutions that prioritize science-based decision-making by visiting ucsusa.org slash standupforscience.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Yanel De Angel and Ramon Bueno. Our correspondent is Abby Figueroa. This Week in Science History by Katie Love Editing by Omari Spears Additional Editing and Music by Brian Middleton Research and Writing by Pamela Wirth The Spanish version of this podcast was edited by Louis Castilla Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter, at GotScienceUCS, or on my account, at ColleenGotSci. Thanks, and see you next time.